Welcome to Art of the Kickstart, your source for crowdfunding campaign success. I'm your host, Roy Morjan, president of Inventus Partners, the top full-service turnkey product development and crowdfunding marketing agency in the world. We have helped startups raise over $100 million for our clients since 2010. Each week, I'll interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert in order to help you take your startup to the next level with crowdfunding. Art of the Kickstart is honored to be sponsored by Backerkit and The Gadget Flow. Backerkit makes software that crowdfunding project creators use to survey backers, organize data, and manage orders for fulfillment by automating your operations and helping you print and ship faster. The Gadget Flow is a product discovery platform that helps you discover, save, and buy awesome products. It is the ultimate buyer's guide for luxury gadgets and creative gifts. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to another edition of Art of the Kickstart. Today I am joined by Dennis and April, the creators of The Undress. Dennis, April, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Hello, thanks for having us. So I love, love, love talking to serial Kickstarter entrepreneurs. You guys are now working on your fifth Kickstarter crowdfunding campaign. I love this, you know, this campaign, you know, I think all of your campaigns have raised like hundreds of thousands of dollars. You guys have the number one dress on Kickstarter ever. I think now with over one and a half million dollars in capital raised through Kickstarter. And I think over 25,000 dresses sold, you know, rough, rough estimates, I guess, based on what, what content you have out there. So it's been really interesting and you know, exciting to follow your journey over the last four years. Really, I, I always love to start with the history, the background. So April and Dennis, please give give our audience an idea about your business backgrounds and where this all began and how you guys got together. Yeah. So one of the first things I like to say is it's a dress, right? And it's a mobile changing room. And that's what makes it interesting. And yes, I invented it, a dude. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, people trip out that it's a guy that uh, invented the dress. And so, yeah, and kind of our, the quick background is April worked for me in one of my other companies. And uh, like you said, I'm, we're basically serial entrepreneurs. So she worked with me at another company. And as runners, cyclists, triathletes, she was running at one of a big running of meetups that we do on a weekly basis on Tuesday called Ed's Waterfront Run. And what's interesting is one of the most popular runs in San Diego, about 50 to 100 runners show up every week, me being one of them, I'm one of the organizers. And uh, we happen to pick a spot in downtown that's really awesome, but has no restrooms, has no place to change. (laughs) And for some odd reason, we just got used to it. And so what we did was we all changed, did the towel change. I think people are familiar with that because a lot of people would come after work directly from work to the run. And with no place to change, you're basically changing in a towel in a public parking lot surrounded by buildings. Or um, hiding in your car. Or if you're like me, you would just stay in your clothes because <laughs> the idea of changing with a towel or changing in like a nasty public bathroom <laughs> seemed kind of really unappealing. Yeah. So one day it hit me, I think in 2013, I'm like, I've been doing it for a long time and competing in triathlon and cycling. And I'm just like, we're all used to it. Million, literally millions of us do this every week, every day for training. And I was just like, somebody's got to be a better way, in particular for women. So one of the things we would do after the run is celebrate by going to the bar. And so when you go to the bar, like half of us would be changed and half of us would be still in our sweaty running clothes. And so we knew that a lot of people were having a hard time finding a way to uh, you know, change out of their clothes. Most people don't want to stay in them, but we, we did. And we did it for years. 
And so one day in 2013, I committed to figuring out a new idea, a new way to do this. It took me about two months to figure out the dress, and but the dress became the answer. And then kind of a little fast forward, I shared it with, I shared the idea with April. She didn't quite understand it, she said, right? And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around how it worked exactly. So, um, yeah, went to Amazon. Yeah, we ended up going to Amazon and buying a dress that kind of fit the needs of what we were looking for, and then just cut it up and made some adjustments to it. And the first time that I tried it, I couldn't believe how easy it was, especially when it came to taking off the sports bra. That was insane. Like I couldn't understand, I guess because as a woman, I'm sort of used to doing things a certain way. And I think it was the ingenious thing of Dennis of thinking about a different way of basically putting on clothes that would allow you to be covered up before you ever took anything off. And just kind of the whole process of it was sort of like, it feels like a magic trick. Like it, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> it just yeah. like a, a something that happens and you don't really like, it seems so simple, but at the same time, it's like, wow, like, how did no one ever think of this before? Yeah. And so the moment she used our prototype, uh, our Amazon prototype, and uh, she she used it, did the bra part, looked at me, had that certain <laughs> look. That was the look where you go, oh, my God, that's a million dollar look right there. Like, she was amazed. And I was yeah. like, okay, maybe there's something here. Originally, I wasn't wanting to do it because I do own other companies and other things that, you know, I, didn't, I thought it might be a distraction. So naturally, I thought, okay, well, the least and the, the smartest way to launch this thing without fully, fully, fully committing was to go to Kickstarter. I, I was still reluctant, but she convinced me after that chain, after that demo that we needed to go. And once you saw the million dollar look, I think every entrepreneur sees it where you're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. You got to try it. And so Kickstarter ended up becoming, we learned about it at the time. I never did one before. And uh, we went to a place called Third Space here in San Diego that had free Kickstarter uh, meetups and uh, we learned. So we ended up uh, going for it to launch our first Kickstarter. And our goal was to sell about 200, 300 units to hit manufacturer minimums at the time. And uh, our goal was uh, roughly around $22,000. And then, yeah, and then that, that's kind of the rest is history. We launched it, did really well, got to about $100,000 with about six days left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. $104,000 is solid campaign. Oddly enough, no marketers on the team other than us and no advertising spend. And uh, we got it to 100K. At around 104,000, it took off. It went viral on Facebook and we made about $100,000 per day in the last five days of that campaign. So we ended up with $615,000 in our very first undress campaign ever. And so that was it. That took off. Sort of the rest is history. You went from a project to a business. And then we just continued to iterate and learn with our backers and continue to produce new versions. Currently, right now, with you guys, we're doing uh, the Undress version 4. So, yeah, we're all the way up to version 4, <laughs> four years later or so. And, uh, yeah, we're really proud of what, what it, we've done. And we really love and appreciate our backer community. There's nothing like it. On, and there's nothing like a Kickstarter in a backer community um, and anything else and any other businesses that I've ever done is it really makes it special. So, and I think there's just the left, the, the last thing that was left to be said was uh, originally April worked for me in another company and then well, her level of dedication and her commitment to the brand and everything that we've done with the undress was invaluable. And I ended up bringing her on as an owner partner and, uh, and then all the adventures began. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. How did you find out about Kickstarter and were you concerned that potentially it was more of a male millennial dominated platform than for a, you know, female specific product, let's say for the undress? 
Yeah, you know, I know I was. I mean, um, it, it, but there was really not that much of an alternative, was there? So, you know, we know Kickstarter was the best and it was male dominated um, and particularly at the time felt very tech dominated um, and film dominated. So I thought we'd give it a shot, a women's dress, a mobile changing room on Kickstarter. Let's see if we can make that successful. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, it was a consideration, but obviously we found a way. What site ended up helping the campaign go viral or what post was it? It wasn't, uh, <laughs> it was in Facebook on a radio station's post. Wow. Of all the places, radio is still alive, huh? They had about 2 million likes at the time. So it was a pretty big page. And so they somehow, some ways, that particular post got traction. And it was interesting because it's not like we didn't have other social posts out there. Other ones just, just didn't, or some did. Like, for example, we had a post that went really viral in Brazil. I don't know if it accounted for any sales, uh, but it was ridiculous. And we were the, the undress was getting started to get shared, tens of thousands of shares easily. And it was interesting. One of the things that I think helped it go viral back then was the fact that the idea of, if you watch the video, you'll see it's after your workout, instead of using a towel, use the undress and you change into the undress and then into another outfit. And people that don't work out outdoors freak out about why would you ever change out of your sweaty clothes and not take a shower and get into another set of clothes. And so that polarity where the, you know, the people who do, did understand it versus the people that didn't understand it would cause comment, you know, cause engagement online. And then that got, that got us really viral. So one of the things that I always say is when you create a product, you want to make sure that it has some polarity to it. And it's not, you know, it doesn't, it, it's got to pique some interest, whether, you know, quote unquote, good or bad. And they always say good or bad press is press, right? So that's what happened with us. And we saw it. So we love the debates. So, you know, it'd be interesting. People are like, who would ever use this? And then the women that are work, work out are like, obviously, you've never worked out outdoors. <laughs> You're probably sitting on your couch right now. And so the undress then after that became literally a symbol of active women everywhere. And our commitment with the undress and our, is, in our mission is to provide convenience, uh, security and peace of mind to women everywhere so they can enjoy what they love and do more of what they love. And so that, that's one of the things that, uh, and Facebook's not quite this way. I think you probably know that. I think you mentioned something of how different it was before and now, but what, you know, a lot of the times we realize now that uh, we believe that algorithmically uh, Kickstarter campaigns are definitely don't get as viral as they used to. Yeah. I don't think we, we definitely cannot repeat our success from before. Cause when we did 615,000, we literally spent about 1800 in ads. And you can't replicate that today. I mean, I wish we could. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah, we yeah. can't even do it. I'm, I'm sure you wish you could too. <laughs> we were very, very, it was very exciting times, especially $100,000 days are fun. Indeed they are. Yeah, those are those are always fun. Let's take a, a step back or let's undress a little bit more in terms of you guys are on your fourth version of this dress. So you got the supply chain down, materials, all of that stuff. What's that process been over the last you know, five years in terms of setting that up and then deciding what features to include in the upcoming designs, you know, for version five to 10. What does that look like? Yeah, I'll just say one thing and I'll let April take on this one is when we when we launched the undress, even though I had somewhat of a clothing background, we, we did not have anything close to an infrastructure of being able to produce 10,000 dresses when we did $615,000 with the sales. So April will talk a little bit about where we were actually at and how success can also lead to panic. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So when we started, I mean, it's, it's basically the process where you have an idea 
and you want to make it happen. But literally, we didn't have any of the resources at the time to know like where we were going to get the dresses made. How do you even like make a pattern and and all? We of had this. a very very. <laughs> we're talking about very tiny, small. It's not even what you'd call factory. Probably two sewers. <laughs> in Los Angeles that were willing to do our dresses because they were complex at the time. Yeah. And they could only do like a couple hundred. <laughs> so Exactly. And luckily though, my mom and sister actually have a background in fashion. Um, my sister studied fashion design at FIDM and my mom actually was a seamstress for years. And she actually made our very first sample of the undress at home on her like tiny plastic sewing machine. And that's literally what later became what we call the million dollar dress. It's the dress that we launched in our first campaign that you see in all our videos. And it was actually, yeah, all the main blue dress that we first made was uh, the, the dress that my mom made for us. And when we launched the first Kickstarter campaign, we literally only had those five samples of dresses that you see in the campaign itself. Like that was the, the, the only versions of the dress that existed at the time. And we didn't have our factory nailed down or even like our, our fabric vendor. And so we were literally, as we were growing and building the campaign itself, we were going out to LA and looking for the resources and trying to like figure out how to put this all together. And yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, it was insane. Yet at the same time, I think we have learned so much through the process of having to get something done because with Kickstarter, once you're done, there are literally for us, there were literally 10,000 people waiting or 10,000 dresses that we had to make for people who were already waiting for it. So the pressure was on to make it happen. And I just remember that I felt so overwhelmed. Like, how is this all going to come together? We actually did end up finding somebody at the time who who was going to kind of take on the whole production side of it and be essentially a production manager for us. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that ended up not working out. She basically quit after, was it after the campaign was over? Yes, after the campaign And was said over. she didn't want to handle this. Yeah. So yeah. we were left hanging to our own advice of trying to figure out finding a factory that can handle the capacity that we needed. And here's the other spin that we have on this is we actually had said that the dresses were going to be made in USA. Yes. So we couldn't use a factory in Mexico or, or Asia or whatnot that usually can handle higher level capacity. And so we were running, we ran into pretty much every problem you could think of. Just, I remember in that moment that it was, if I felt like, how we're going to make this happen. And it felt really scary. And I just remember Dennis telling me like, we're going to do this. Like we're going to take this on <laughs> yeah. and we're going to make it happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, luckily, I mean, we did end up finding the vendors and it, actually some really great vendors that we still use to this day. And we actually found a factory who said that they could get all 10,000 dresses done by the time frame that we wanted, which was a lie. Big fat <laughs> lie. So oh, I'm, I'm jumping in here. All right. So we have 10,000 dresses we've got to make. We've got to make them in the United States. We, luckily, we're close to Los Angeles, which is basically the home of fashion and factories in the United States. So we were, we, we were only a couple hour drive. So that, that helped. We ended up finding some guys who ended up saying, yeah, we could do your 10,000 dresses by January. 
and our dresses were supposed to be supposed to be delivered in February. I'm like, all right, cool. Oh my God. They taking on, basically we felt really great because they're taking on this massive pressure and headache to go take, uh, to do these dresses. So we think we're all set, not anywhere close. What ends up happening, we end up giving a massive deposit to these guys. I'm talking about six figure deposit, right? To these guys to go make these dresses. January rolls around, no dresses are made. February rolls around, we have like, I think it was a few hundred dresses. Something mm-hmm. was going wrong. And they said, hey, Dennis, we have a problem. Our factory, they basically had to kind of shut down their factory for some reason. And they said, is it okay if we outsource it? So they started, they sent the dresses to like multiple factories, multiple places throughout all of LA. We were desperate. We said, okay, fine. That wasn't part of original deal. And we thought they'd just handle it. And they'll be like, oh, they'll be done in a month if we can get someone else to do it. So now they're going around putting our dresses in different factories. And then we end up in about mm, five or six factories spread out through LA. And we ended up finding out at the, I believe I never fully confirmed this, but what ended up happening was that original factory that we did the deal with ended up losing their garment license. So they weren't allowed to produce. So they had an issue with the department of labor standards enforcement and that put us in a real bind. And so they were still trying to figure it out by outsourcing it to someone else. So now you got our our dresses all everywhere in in LA. So here we are wondering where our dresses are. They shipped the, one of the big problems was they actually shipped about 400 or 500 units in about February around Valentine's Day. So we started shipping some of them to our customers. That was a big problem because now you had 400 people that had dresses and like 7,000 that didn't. And so now they're like, where's our dresses? And so that just sped up the pressure. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, okay, cool. Well, they're going to come next month. And they kept telling us literally every month. Here's the yeah. next, ne- we're going to have it next month, next month, next month, next month. And literally, and about literally three or four months later, we're still in this process. And we're like, well, where are our dresses with like very little or no dresses after three or four months? It was a crazy production time. I, I definitely lost years of my, our lives <laughs> oh my in that time. So what ended up happening was this, it, they ended up spreading out the factories, five or six or seven different factories. And obviously these guys were not organized. And we ended up finding out later when we visited these factories and, and, and got to know them after the fact was that they weren't paying the factories. So the factories were holding the dresses and not completing them. They were saying to the factories that we didn't pay them, which was not true. We gave them all the money that they needed in order to complete the job. And so when we finally put our foot down for all our backers, so we're going to visit LA every single week until we get these dresses. We did that for three months straight. We did that for three months straight, trying to get these dresses out. And so we come to the factory. The factory would think we were the a-holes that weren't paying. So they would sit there and act like they're working on the dresses. And literally, as soon as we leave, they would pull the dresses off the line because they weren't getting paid for them. And so we were the bad guys, oddly enough, set up as, as bad guys. And what was happening was the co- original company we dealt with, and a lot of companies do this, and you, so you got to be careful, is they'll take money in from one project and put it into either their debt or something else, that they're, other projects that they're behind on. And that's what ended up happening. So they had cash flow issues. We didn't know that at the time. And we gave them six figures. And so go, just to kind of imagine, disorganized, got six figures, put their money somewhere else, trying to, and they're doing this with their other clients, right? And so we ended up finding out, that out. Luckily, to you know, we we thank God that at the end of the day, that all the dresses got delivered because there was a very a high chance that we would have been you know one and done right there if they mm-hmm. did go bankrupt. And eventually, we delivered all the dresses eight months late, and we were so grateful to our backers for being so patient. 
And we didn't know what happened until, like I said, after the fact, when people felt safe to talk to us because of their contracts and deals with these guys, we ended up finding those things out. We literally went back to some of the people, like for example, the pattern makers and all these other weren't even paid on our own project by them that they were supposed to handle. And so we even offered to pay after the fact that they didn't pay just to make sure that they were good with us. We wanted to keep our reputation clean. Yeah. And so that was one of the craziest projects we've ever been into. We've ever been. And we now, I don't think we even actually told the story to our backers, so they should probably hear that. Mm-hmm. But we were so grateful for them for being so patient and having to deal with that. And we've never dealt with anything like that ever again, thank God. But yeah, so now, fast forward, we have produced dresses and have been really good at producing dresses, not only in the United States, but we've also produced in Mexico. And we're also looking into Asian ma- manufacturing now. And we have a huge appreciation for uh, working with the right people. And now, you know, we're doing productions and they're on time. And we're really happy about that. But doesn't mean that, but the Kickstarters, every time we were trying to produce a brand new dress though, you know, and it's just saying that all, any, anybody out there, I think every time you try to produce something that's brand new, you're going to have some hiccups. And we did. We do still kind of have some hiccups every once in a while, but not too bad. Nothing like that though. Uh, yeah, we're constantly innovating. So well, innovation also brings new problems sometimes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's a fast forward. We feel like we're experts now. <laughs> that's it. You've run five of these now. Like you've gone through the gauntlet. You passed the first test. You delivered product late, but that's okay. People still liked it and they're coming back for more every single campaign that you guys keep launching. So, you know, I'm glad that you guys took the right steps to do it the right way and, you know, fulfill the product that you said your to your backers that you were going to do, whether it was, you know, produced in the U.S. or not. But you guys took those additional steps and, you know, kept them updated. And now hopefully you can share this podcast with all of your community members <laughs> and, you know, let them know the, the behind the scenes, you know, stories that they didn't see in the updates. Right. Yeah, for sure. We didn't. Well, we didn't even know. So <laughs> at the time, what was really going on? It was yeah. crazy. But thank you. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the the marketing side. I mean, I know in your first campaign, you just launched it and got lucky with a a nice viral post on the radio station's page. But, you know, now that you've gone through the evolution years and years and products and products later, how has your marketing approach changed to launching new products on crowdfunding on Kickstarter? First and foremost, I think the number one most important thing you need to do on a Kickstarter campaign as a creator that's doing it, especially for the first time. The number one thing isn't necessarily a pre-launch email list, which is really important, or some of the other things that you may read on Google. I think the number one thing that people, I think, underestimate is if you want to have a really successful Kickstarter project, do this one thing. Get an expert on your team. That's the most important thing. Someone who has been there before, has done it, you don't, you know, like a lot of times you do not, you don't want to invent this right now. It is a lot more work than people understand, but it's worth it. So anyways, first and foremost, get an expert on team. Then second, yeah, so I'm sure you guys know very well, you know, pre-launch lists, really doing your testing prior to launching your campaign. If you want to get sophisticated, you know, figuring out is your audience, the audience you assume is wanting this product. And then when I say audience, I'm talking about your ad, ad campaigns. You got to test those ad campaigns against pre-launch. And learn to see what it'll take to get, you know, your ads dollars turning into either leads or whatnot. And that's kind of a more sophisticated side. And obviously on the more, you know, one of the questions I always ask people when we're, you know, and again, I speak at the university, California International Business University on crowdfunding. I ask her the question, you know, I want to do a crowdfunding campaign. Okay. Do you want to make $10,000 or a hundred thousand or more? 
because the strategies are a little different or <laughs> very different, right? And the prep level yeah. of preparation is different. The people that you need on the team is completely different. Yeah, we, I've, I think I've only done one campaign under 100,000, which was 87,000 um, in my history. So I don't, I don't really you know, do five or 10,000, but I can, uh, I've helped a lot of people do that. And so, yeah, that would be my first question. What would you do? But since we're talking to you guys and you guys have done million dollar projects, yeah, you know, it's, it's all about that pre-market. The pre-marketing is extremely important, finding out what's going on. And if people are even interested in your product, we do tests, we run ads, we run, we, we get feedback everywhere. And you try to find out, are you nailing the communication with the product and is it fitting the need? And then you adjust all your marketing, you adjust all your videos, you adjust all your scripts, you adjust everything that you're planning based on all of everything that you learned before you ever launch. And then that's really important. And, and, and your people will tell you and you'll know pretty quickly if it's landing or not. And so, you know, that's one of the first things. And then you can test by spending money on ads that are saying what you think you're saying really clearly. And when you run those ads and nobody's land, nobody's signing up on the, you know, signing up uh, for an email uh, in the pre-launch list and they're not that excited about it, then that's feedback. And you get to figure out what it is that you're not doing or saying or showing that's not doing that. And you want to figure all of that stuff out before you ever launch because it's really tricky to figure out when you're in it, in, in a live campaign. It, it just, it's funky. A lot of times, you know, I think industry standard is you, sh- you know, run Facebook ads and you try to get leads and your leads, if they're anywhere between one to $2 about the industry average. For us, you know, we want to get quality leads that are approximately, you know, 20 to 30 something cents per lead. I mean, I'm getting, I don't know if I'm getting too sophisticated in the conversation right now. That's kind of it. And you try to build a big email list. And I think that's super important to get that first day to be really successful. You got, uh, you know, and so you want to have the most successful in literally achieve your goal in like the first 24 hours, 48 hours of, of your campaign. You know, one of the tenants that we do with all of our campaigns is really test, test, test and try and really hone in on that product market fit and the consumer that you think is going to actually purchase your product. Because there's a lot of people out there clicking on stuff, but they're not necessarily speaking with their credit cards when it comes to Kickstarter. Yeah. And then on our side with all in businesses, we only look at conversion. We don't look at engagement. We don't look at any of the um, kind of the vanity metrics at all. It's literally money in, money out and action, true, true action. And like you said, credit card is the pledges you want, not the likes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The likes don't keep the lights on. No, they don't. They don't. Yeah. They don't let us bake our product. So. <laughs> yeah. well, this has been awesome. Dennis, since you drew the short straw, you get to go in the launch round room or rapid fire a handful of questions at you. I know you're good to go. So let's get started. What inspired you to be an entrepreneur? Oh, wow. I've always just wanted to do my own thing. I started off as a comic book artist when I was 16. I kind of had my own studio, but I was working for another t-shirt company um, at the time. Believe it or not, like I believe I, I became an entrepreneur because back then, especially before, quote unquote, the internet and social media and all the opportunities we have today, back then, if you wanted to have a product in market, you had to go through so many gatekeepers. You had to have Sears love it, or you had to have some retailers love it. You had to, you could, if people, if those guys did not want your product, your idea would die. There's no way to get it out into market. Think about that for a second. It's not that way anymore. Obviously with Kickstarter and why I love it, because anyone and everyone has uh, access to this, uh, you know, these possibilities and opportunities. But back then it wasn't that way. So it was even harder as an artist working through someone some other partner that knew business to then go try to pitch and launch your product to someone else. So what I ended up doing was becoming my own 
basically business owner and entrepreneur so that I, there was less of a middleman and I can make my dreams come true. Or I was in full control as much as I could, both the good and the bad of being in control. <laughs> but yeah, that's why. So if you could meet with any entrepreneur throughout history, who would it be? Oh, geez. Walt Disney. Number one. Disney. Number one. Good, good one. I haven't heard that in a while. So what would have been your first question? It would probably be something like this, more like, what are we not seeing that's making all the stuff out of your brain happen? Like, what are we not seeing? What's people are not, what are people not asking you? I want to know that. The thing that intrigues me about Walt is, is just look at it. I mean, he became, his, his passion and everything ended up influencing, I don't know, what's the number? 50% of the kids in the world <laughs> or more? Probably even more. Yeah. Yeah. How did that happen? And then here's the even most amazing part as a business owner. After his death, look at his legacy. You know, how do you do that? That's, that's, that's insane. The guy had vision, stuck to it. Um, but I know there's more behind the story. So that, those mis- that mystery side of it is the part that intrigues me. And I do, you know, and I, and, and I, and I have read, um, you know, books on um, Walt. And I, I swear to God, there's more. <laughs> and I would want to know whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. And talking about books, what book or, you know, what book would you recommend to our audience? Let's see. Anytime, if you're a brand new, fresh off the fresh off the boat kind of uh, entrepreneur, then I would I always recommend the E Myth by Gerber. It just kind of really helps you understand what it what it is and what it isn't about being a business owner and an entrepreneur. And I think it answers a lot of questions pretty quickly and gives you the scope of what it really takes to do this in the quickest amount of time. Four hour work week is there too. It's just a great yeah, way to Tim's look at what. Yeah, Tim's great. <laughs> He's solid. All right. Last question, Dennis. What does the future of crowdfunding look like? Uh, to me, I think that I think the future of crowdfunding is a future of small business. You know, uh, you're, you're, I'm, like my brain's going into a very big vision. I do this. I, you know, I love this subject. I just see that kind of like my story about when I first started and access to being able to, you know, produce your dream and make it a reality in the world was very small. That is obviously has changed, and I believe more and more and more people will be able to contribute to the world by allowing their imaginations and their creativity to actually exist in the world through all the technology, crowdfunding, and every 3D printing, and everything else you could possibly think of. And then it's going to allow our communities to really, um, and everybody in our community, to be able to contribute uh, to the world. And, and so it's more than just the, the, the chosen few that get to, to get to play and make things happen in the world. And that's the beauty of our day and age right now is like, uh, everybody has a shot. That's what I see. And so the future of crowdfunding to me is a major part of that is, uh, basically, you know, the way I look at it is crowdfunding is, is, is a really simple way to get a bunch of people that believe in something to make it happen. And that's it and make it live in the world. And that's, and that's really my passion is creating something from nothing and making it a reality. So that's why I love crowdfunding and I love, uh, what you guys do, what we, you know, and, and, and just this whole entire world i i i'll pitch it all day long i want people i would i say everyone should try to do a crowdfund at least once in their life <laughs> absolutely no you and me both dennis well this has been awesome dennis and april i really really appreciate this at the end of the show i give you an opportunity to kind of pitch the audience tell everyone what you're all about where people should go and why they should check you out so please tell them so like dennis mentioned we're live on kickstarter with the undress version four theundressv4.com. This new version of the dress is my favorite version. It's so comfortable and the quickest 
dress of all the versions we've done in terms of changing. And so, um, and we also have some new products that we're launching as well in this campaign, including a handbag <laughs> and a new version of our um, super shawl that we've gotten lots of feedback on and um, that people have loved and a bra that works specifically for the undress, which we're super excited about. And I love so much. So it's yeah. four, four, four crowdfunding one. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more, Dennis. Tell me. There's always more. There's yeah. always more, yeah. So yeah, so it's been a, it's been fun. Well, this has been fun. Dennis and April, thank you so much for being on the show. Audience, thanks for tuning in. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for the notes, the transcript, links to the campaign and everything we talked about today. And of course, thank you to our crowdfunding podcast sponsors, The Gadget Flow and Backer Kit. And if you love this episode as much as I do, make sure you leave us a nice review on iTunes. Dennis, April, thank you so much for joining us today on Art of the Kickstart. Thank thanks you so much. much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Art of the Kickstart, the show about building a business, world, and life with crowdfunding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, awesome. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com and tell us all about it. There you'll find additional information about past episodes, our Kickstarter guide to crushing it. And of course, if you love this episode a lot, leave us a review at artofthekickstart.com slash iTunes. It helps more inventors, entrepreneurs, and startups find this show and helps us get better guests to help you build a better business. If you need more hands-on crowdfunding strategy advice, please feel free to request a quote on inventuspartners.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week.